This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, did you know that Canada's Prime Minister is the most powerful Democratic leader in the world, even more than the U.S. President? Canadian Public Administration and Regional Economic Development Scholar Donald Savoy helps us understand why Canadian Prime Ministers have so much power, where the power comes from, and why that should change. Plus, are you okay with the Great Florida Saga of Endless Stories for Fun from Florida? awful lot lately about government stuff. Of course, we've seen the foreign interference conversation, which I sort of say foreign interference is kind of a moot point. Uh, Domestic complicitness is really where we need to be looking in all of these conversations, right? Other governments are always going to try to meddle with us. We meddle in other governments. What can we say? But one of the things that's really come up in all of this is how much power does the PM have? And maybe in Canada, and how does that compare to other countries? You see, we saw in the past when there was scandals, the prime minister can prorogue government. Uh, Prime ministers have done it from all parties. Let's call it for what it is, but they can do it. And they seem to bring in all of these people to do their work that they're friends with. They all do it. That to me seems concerning. There are some examples in other governments that this works really well and maybe it doesn't work so great. So we wanted to get into a conversation about how much power does the PM have? Donald Savoie is our guest right now here on The Shift. This is what he does. Uh, this is his, his life's work, frankly. Um, Canada Research Chair, Public Administration and Governance at the University of Moncton. And joining us here on The Shift. Donald, thank you for being here with us. Um, anything that I said in that first chunk there, sound that I've got it wrong or I misunderstanding or, or, or are we taking a look at, at this clearly? Thank you for having me. No, what you started off with is the perfect way to engage it. Uh, you're asking uh, if the Prime Minister of Canada has immense power. The answer is yes. We can get into it. Do you want to get into it now? Yeah, well, I think that um, we've seen we've seen the, the ability for the Prime Minister in Canada to literally flip a switch when something he doesn't like is he or she doesn't like is happening. Now, both parties have done this, so this is not a partisan conversation. We will speak to what is happening now in government. I know that I always get emails about saying, oh, you don't like this party. You don't like this prime minister. Look, the prime minister is the prime minister. And if the person who is in power now is doing the thing, they're the one we're talking about. So that's not a partisan conversation. Um, It's a pragmatic conversation. So, Donald, let's start there. I mean, what kinds of things do we see that are incredibly powerful of the PM in Canada that maybe other countries they can't do? Maybe let's just start on the simple level of, of maybe some of those little light switches they seem to have. Let's start, let's start with your point. You made the point that this is not a partisan thing, that it happens to cut across uh, party politics. You're absolutely correct. The tendency to centralize power in the prime minister's office began in the late 60s with Pierre Trudeau, and it has continued. It has gained in strength. And the question you're asking, do our prime minister, does our prime minister have more power than his counterparts? The answer is, is yes. I've just published a book that compared four countries, France, England, the uh, United States and Canada. And one of the questions that I ask is how much power the, the, the four leaders, the presidents and prime ministers have. There's no question. And I'm not the only one making this case. There's no question that the King prime minister has more power than the U.S. president. Bear in mind, in the U.S., you have checks and balances. 
more power than the French president. Bear in mind that this uh, is a com it's a combination of presidential and parliamentary government. It has more power than the British prime minister, because British prime backbenchers do have a degree of, uh, of independence that we don't enjoy here in Canada. So to answer your question, yes, it's nonpartisan. There's no question about that. Every prime minister, every leader of the opposition has said, when I get in power, I will decentralize power. I will make cabinet government work. The last example is Justin Trudeau in, in 2015. And I recall vividly when he said, the person who started the process of centralization was my father. It'd be, it'll be me that will untangle that. Well, he didn't. And so it's easier for a leader of the opposition to say they have too much power. Once they land in the, in the prime minister's chair, they become very comfortable with the levers of power. And in the case of Canada, there's a great number of levers of power. Seems very convenient, doesn't it, right? Um, to, you get in there and you realize, oh, I don't have to deal with this problem. I can just, you know, use that lever as you described to do that. Um, centralizing government and power in government, and I'm, I'm curious, this is a naive question. The size of government in this particular government has gone up literally, I think the number is over 25% now. Um, it, it was like 260,000 employees. Now it's 330 or so. Uh, it's quite a bit. Is that a byproduct of this centralized government that it's bringing in more and more power and control and not allowing the marketplace to deal with some of these things? Or, or is that completely unrelated to this? I'm not sure it's unrelated, but it's not the key point. I think you can centralize power without increasing staff. I think Stephen Harper um, was able to control from the center as much as much as his previous you know, prime ministers and the ones that perhaps not as much as the current prime minister, but he was able to he was able to centralize power. I didn't see Stephen Harper increase the size of the public service to, to, to the same extent that the current prime minister has. So I don't think I would equate a growing government with more centralization of power. I think it depends on the prime minister. It also depends on sort of the need to cut across. There's no, there's no program that belongs to one department any, anymore. Programs have to cut across departments. So there's some legitimate reasons why you would want to centralize power. But I think in the case of Canada, we've overdone it. Okay. So where uh, levels of government where we see basically ultimate control, I'm not an expert like you are, Donald, so you know these things. Um, I'm going to throw out what I know. My vocabulary might even be wrong, but I think the premise is, is good. So we have uh, senators get appointed completely. We have seen, obviously, political affiliations with senators absolutely be a thing. Judges, privy council, those kinds of um, appointments even though that there might be a little bit of a proxy to a department, fundamentally it all goes back to the prime minister. Whereas in the States, the judges have a public uh, forum of voting whether or not they fit or don't fit uh, as partisan as that is at times. In Canada, there's nothing of that. I have an idea on that one too. I look forward to sharing, bouncing that off you later. Um, and so those to me are two of the big ones, not to mention the governor general, who really oversees and is the representative if government fails is also appointed by one person and one person only. Are there more that we're missing that are more important than those three? Well, there's no question that the power of appointment is crucial and the power of appointment in the hands of the prime minister is incredible. Let me give you the list. You're right. Senators, cabinet ministers, judges, but it doesn't end there. Deputy ministers, the general manager, the head of, the, uh, of a government department, 
is appointed solely by the prime minister. Ministers at times are not even consulted. I'll go even further, and this is fairly recent. It wasn't the case 40, you know, 40 years ago. It's become the case. The prime minister controls who is chief of staff to cabinet ministers. So even cabinet ministers cannot appoint their own chief of staff. Oh, Further, so that could be that could the be the babysitter, right? Like that could even be somebody who's basically, hey, by the way, Donald, I want you to be the I want you to be the the head of this department, and then I go to Steve over there. I'm like, Steve, you need to make sure Donald does this the way I need him to do it, and you let me know. I mean, that's a little bit of a, a fabrication of fiction, but it's possible. I'm not sure it's much of a fabrication. If you read, if you read Bill Marno's book, he had a chief of staff in mind. The prime minister's office said, "No, we have you will you will be getting this chief of staff." So, uh, the chief of staff to Bill Murnau was appointed by the prime minister's office. His director of communications, his director of policy, in his own office, was appointed, you know, by the prime minister. So, the power of appointment is an extremely powerful uh, instrument in government because people get their promotions through you know through the prime minister. So, um, that is critical in the United States. The president can't suggest appointments, not just judges, but even senior career officials, even senior appointments uh, in departments. They have to be vetted by the Senate. Some of them occasionally are turned down, but not in Canada. Huh. So, okay, head of department. What's an example of a department that somebody would be appointed head of? All departments. All departments are headed you know, by a minister. All departments are headed by a deputy minister, which we call the permanent head. So the senior public servant in a department, the one who runs a department, they are appointed by the prime minister. So not only the prime minister appoints the political head of a department, he also appoints the administrative head of a government department, of all government departments. So, okay, so then you would have, um, you could have a department say somebody who has to hold checks and balances or report to uh, the status of things, uh, I don't know, budgetary offices, all those kinds of things that are supposed to audit, and then yet they're still reporting to the prime minister anyway, that to me that doesn't um, breed an opportunity for clarity or, you know, frankly, accuracy. It's a valid point. Look, uh, guidelines issued by the Privy Council Office makes it clear to deputy ministers that they have that they have that that they that they report to several points. Number one is the prime minister and the privy council office because their future appointments depends on the prime minister, not on the minister. And so a deputy minister is told you have several points of responsibility. You report to the to the prime minister via the privy council office. You report uh, to your minister. You report to the treasury board. You report. You bear in mind the, the several you know. Uh, Officers of Parliament, be it the Auditor General and so on. So a Deputy Minister, the permanent head of a department, has, you know, has many heads to whom he needs to be accountable to, starting with the Prime Minister and, uh, and the Privy Council Office. Okay, well, the one example we've seen for heads of departments is literally on Tuesday, released the public inquiry information um, in regards to foreign interference and all of that. I, I don't even know what to ask you, Donald. I mean, uh, Donald um, Savoy is here. He's the Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance, University of Moncton. Um, is this just another example of that power that the, the Prime Minister uh, yields in calling it a rapporteur and, and, and creating this job that this person who used to work for the organization named after his dad and go skiing with and, 
I mean, to me, politically, that doesn't breed confidence for most Canadians just because of the proximity, I guess, of it all. And yet here we have it happening again. Is this the most recent example of what you're talking about, of just these appointments and total control? Well, the appointment of the special rapporteur was um, uh, made by the prime minister and no one else. Uh, I doubt very much, I wasn't there, but I doubt very much if cabinet had much of a say. The prime minister may have consulted a few senior ministers and said, what do you think of so-and-so? So the appointment was was under the prerogative of the prime minister, no question about that. Um, and the rapporteur would report to the prime minister. So to answer your question, yes, it wasn't it wasn't parliament that appointed this person. It wasn't a committee of parliament. It was the prime minister. So why wouldn't that person? I mean, I don't know about you, but. I've done a lot of work in my life making sure my boss looked good, <laughs> right? Like I, when I've had jobs, I mean, I've worked really hard to make sure my bosses look good uh, through the course of things. Um, uh, now, I, I, that's kind of a flippant comment on my part, but the reality is, is it's, I think it's a human thing. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I mean, we've seen the results of that today. And is this one of the byproducts that we see why we've seen such an erosion of autonomy or independence inside party voting for MPs. I mean, most people, when they go vote, they don't even vote. They don't even know their MPs name anymore. They just vote for the party because the MPs we're seeing less and less autonomy to have a say, to have a voice. And we've seen in this particular government, um, the current liberal government, that if you have a voice or you take a voice, you get kicked out real quick. Is this another byproduct of this sort of centralized look that there's so much power in the PM's office that you have to because they can literally, it seems to me, they can literally end your career today. The old saying in Ottawa, boys in short pants run the show. Uh, that might be an overstatement, but just a slight one. I think your point is valid. Look, think back 30, 40 years ago. Think back of ministers that had clout. Think back of an Alan J. McKechn and Otto Lang uh, Lloyd Axworthy, they had clout, they stood for something. Um, and when you talked about senior ministers, you knew that they stood for a certain policy. They knew, you knew that they stood for a certain you know, position that they would defend in cabinet, in parliament. Try to think of their counterparts today. Try to think of a senior minister that has clout, that stands for a policy. Um, that, that the kind of clout that an Otto Lang had, that uh, Lloyd Axworthy had, uh, Sinclair had. So you had some powerful voices, independent, you know, uh, uh, of the prime minister. I, I look around and I search for those voices today and I don't see many. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a checkbox, right? Do you believe the same things we believe? Yep. Are you willing to do what we tell you to do? Yep. Okay. You can run for MP right now. I remember, Donald, back in the day, you know, when I was a young person, talking to my dad as my dad taught me about politics and my dad was a millwright and he moved his way up into management. He worked uh, as a millwright, a millwright in mills, sawmills in, in BC on Vancouver Island. He worked as a millwright in the oil sands in Fort McMurray. And I remember the stark contrast of politics versus, you know, the early eighties in, you know, Vancouver Island, BC versus the later eighties up in Fort McMurray. And I remember my dad talking about how there was some 
political parties, and it doesn't matter which ones, that he didn't really agree with, but that MP was taking a stand for his industry, for his job. And so he's like, well, I don't really want this party in power, but when it comes to my job in this place, I need this MP to get voted in. And that look of being able to do what was best for your community seems to be a look that is lost at least 20 years ago, if not 25 or 30, that we don't have today because nobody, like, I can't tell you what my MPs stand for. I can tell you that they send more mail to my mailbox than anybody else does. Um, But that's it, right? You're absolutely correct. Um, It's difficult for an MP to take a position because positions, policies are set by polls. Policy are set are set by advisors to the leader to the leader of the party, and somebody who wants to be a member of parliament needs the support of his political party. The position, the platform, the policy positions are dictated by the center. So, uh, if you want to be an MP, you go along. You just don't challenge it, and that's just the way it is. Um, and you're quite right. Uh, Thirty, forty years ago, MPs stood for something. Think of Eugene Whelan. He stood for farmers. He did. And people knew that. Ottawa knew that. Prime ministers knew that. Try to think of Eugene Whelan today. It yeah. doesn't exist. They Going don't exist. 25 years ago, 23, 22, 20 years ago, I mean, you had liberals that stood for economics. You had liberals that stood for oil and gas, not recklessness. And they fought, like, fought against oil and gas for responsibility. But at the same time, the economics that came with the benefits of oil and gas. As a liberal today, I, I don't think you're allowed to drive a combustion engine. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like, I, that's flippant. But, the, but, you know, 25 years ago, that whole party was different because people took stands. And that's what they did. They fought for getting um, power plants in their communities. They fought for things. They did, it wasn't about, hey, by the way, we disagree with coal or nuclear or whatever. It was, we need jobs and this is how we're going to do it. And this is what we can offer. And it's, it's gone. I mean, you've seen this for a long time, Donald. I mean, does it break your heart a little bit? It breaks my heart more than a little bit. It breaks my heart uh, enormously. Look, several years ago, we had an opportunity in New Brunswick that matched the opportunity in Alberta and Saskatchewan. We had Energy East. It would have been a game changer for New Brunswick. It would have helped immensely Alberta and Saskatchewan. And it was killed. Now, I know that MPs from my region supported it. I know that. But you would n- they would never say it publicly. They weren't allowed to. And so you wonder, um, what's the point of being a member of parliament if you can't voice your opinion of something as critical for us as Energy East, as critical for us and as critical uh, for Alberta and Saskatchewan for a big chunk of the country? They weren't allowed to say it. They believed it. I think 40, 50 years ago... MPs would have voiced, uh, you know, their views much more clearly. So we, we, they speak with the approval of leaders of their political parties. Yeah, or at the risk of losing it, their approval, right? Um, yeah. So, oh man. Like, okay, this is not a well-formed thought, but it is occurring to me, so I'm going to try to communicate it. I feel like we don't represent Canada anymore, which breaks my heart. I think Canada is the most beautiful... Um, country in the world. I think we've done amazing things here. 
I feel like we don't represent Canada anymore. We just represent ideology. It's either this ideology or that ideology. And the ideology is higher in the hierarchy than the country is. Um, we're seeing it all over, I think, the world uh, by the structure of these things. Um, is it possible that the way we know democracy has sort of failed us that way? Or is it really these levers and where we've held lack of accountability? Because it's I don't think it's about power, if I'm honest, Donald. I think it's a lack of accountability in the system, really. Because if you had accountability in the system, we had accountability on judges. We I don't know if we'd be in this place. If we, the accountability included... So down in the States, they hold all those hearings that are on TV and it's very political and everything else. In Canada, if even if the prime minister could just um, appoint a judge, and we didn't change that part, but we did make sure that they had their top three or top five choices, had to go through a public interview process, it would be accountability on the voter at least to say, you know, these guys are boneheads. Like this person obviously is a good judge or a bad judge or whatever. And so there would become public accountability in that. But again, you go back to the fact that no one's allowed to say anything. And I, I don't know if that works. Well, accountability is absolutely critical to government. Uh, market forces are critical to the private sector. Accountability is the market forces of government. We've lost sight of it. I'm uh, just putting the funny, you know, final draft to a manuscript, a book on accountability. And it is lacking. There's no question that it's lacking. Look, we've, we've established 40,000 new positions in the federal public service. Who's accountable for that? Who do you talk to to say, why did we do that? And what are they going to do? Uh, so accountability is critical. But I wouldn't let go of power. Power is also important. And let me explain why. Somebody in Ottawa, leaders of political parties, say, okay, what we want to do is win the next election. So where do we win the next election? Well, you win the next, uh, the next election in Ontario and you win a majority government in Quebec. That's the way it works. Energy East, had the votes been there, had New Brunswick had 75 MPs, Ontario 120, Energy East would be in place by now. So it's not just accountability, it's power, how it's calculated, who, uh, you know, how to get it, but after, after power has been established, you need accountability. So I think we're lacking on both ends. So how do we fix it, Donald? I mean, um, you're the Canada Research Chair in Public Administration and Governance. I mean, you've seen this for decades. You've seen this for generations. Um, is there any way that we can fix this under the current plan? It's like ridings, right? Um, when someone says, we're going to balance the power and rewrite the ridings to properly reflect the whatever, whatever. Well, they're never going to do it if it doesn't benefit them. So it's a lose-lose scenario. And then they get in power and they're like, well, that worked. Maybe we shouldn't change it. Well, here's a suggestion. We could take a big chunk of Ottawa and move it out into the regions. You know, 50 years ago, 72% of federal public servants worked in the region. 72%. Today it's down to 56 or 57%. So we could reverse that. Mm -hmm. We could say cabinet will now meet every fourth week will now meet in Western Canada. Not just uh, because it meets every, every week in Ottawa. There's no reason why you can't move that whole app, you know, shebang and move it to, you know, to Alberta or Saskatchewan, you know, one week. Uh, move it to Ontario, to Toronto, if you like. Move it to Halifax for one week. Give the sense of the country to cabinet and to the prime minister. Decentralized government. I think that's, you know, you know, that is one solution. Accountability, yeah, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of work that needs to be done. Not just at the political level, but at the public service level as well. 
You know, it blows my mind about this. Have you looked at housing prices in Ottawa recently by chance? Well, you know, we've established the fact that you could run the federal government a lot more cheaper if you moved, if you moved units out. You yeah. know, the cost office um, rental is a lot cheaper in parts of Canada than it is uh, in Ottawa. There's a number of things that you could do. Uh, so right. I think the problem is both at the political level, at the power level, who holds power, and at the accountability level. So uh, a townhouse, um, I have a more experience around the price of townhouses just because of the way life has gone for me for the last little bit. I'll share this story. So like you said about decentralizing, I mean, everybody in Ottawa, Ottawa is an amazing beast, right? Uh, most people in Ottawa are dual income families, statistically. Most of them are very well educated. And most of them are bilingual to be able to work in the government. Most of them, if they don't work in government, they work in an industry that supports the government. And that creates, because both parents are usually working, a whole vacuum of support systems and industry to support those families. A, a 3,500-square-foot townhouse in Ottawa that's about 30 minutes away from downtown versus a 3,500-square-foot th- uh, townhouse in Calgary that's 30 minutes away from downtown. The price disparity was $300,000. That same townhouse, a double garage uh, attached in Airdrie, just outside Calgary City, which is about the same distance away, $380,000. Single single garage townhouse in Ottawa, 30 minutes away from downtown, $680,000. That's staggering. And yet here we have these conversations about, hey, we got to do something about the price of housing. We've got to do all this stuff. But it's evident to me anyway, that it's a byproduct of the decisions that are coming right from, from there. And I don't, again, um, you know, the fish rots from the head down, man. Like we've seen this and we are seeing the, we are seeing the results of it today in, in ways we've never seen before. And I don't know if that's too much or not, but that's the way I feel about it. You just made my case because we have the means of communications. Now we could take units, move it out of Ottawa and put it in Calgary, put it in Winnipeg, put it in Halifax. We have the technology. You and I are talking. We're seeing one another. You're in Calgary. I'm in Moncton. There's no reason why the Federal Public Service could not do the same. So what it requires is political will. We haven't seen much of it to move things and people and units uh, outside of Ottawa. I would also add in terms of support, you know, we, uh, we now spend about $20 billion a year. I will repeat, $20 billion a year on outside consultants. A chunk of that, a large chunk of that is in Ottawa. So it's, we're not only talking about the public service, we're talking about what fuels it and what fuels government. You know, $20 billion a year in consultants, that's a lot of money. Well, hey, I was pretty sure we elected those people to be the experts to do the job. We didn't elect anybody to subcontract it out. <laughs> like, that's the, that's, that stinks. Well, how, how, do you, how do you explain it? It comes back, you know, in terms of accountability. How do you explain to you, you add 30, 40,000 new positions in the federal public service, and at the same time, you add an extra $7 billion a year in outside help? How do you explain yeah. that? Somebody should be accountable for that. At the I've moment, never, no uh, one is. I've never thought of it that way, right? If we've brought in more employees to get the job done and be more efficient at it, um, you know, the uh, why is it that we need more help deciding on what we need, which is also kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. You know, the... We could we could bang on the government and continue this conversation forever, Donald, because it goes on and on and on. I mean, it's endless, the levels of uh, recklessness and everything that is there. Um, again, I mean, if Canada's 
as a democracy has this much power in the prime minister, it doesn't really feel much like a democracy anymore. I feel like we're getting, I feel like the government humors us with an election these days. I, I felt that way since this whole partnership between the liberal and the NDP, which I'm pretty sure uh, we're starting to see evidence that this is sort of the same beast with a different mask on um, in order to have that power. And uh, NDP voters, they should be really mad. I think if you're an NDP supporter in this country, how you're not upset about this stuff is mind-blowing to me. But it doesn't feel much like a democracy anymore. It feels more like, a, you know, let's make them feel good. Let's let them vote every few years and, uh, and let them pretend that they have a say. What you've just said is shared by many, many, many Canadians. And I bring you back to this top of the show when you made the comment, my, we live in a beautiful country. Canada is special. I, w- I don't want to be anybody else or anything else than Canadian. But we, we got to keep an eye on things because our political institutions are not delivering the kind of goods that we expect them to. They're not speaking up for Canada. They're not speaking up for all parts of Canada. So we have to work at it. We have the nicest country. There's no question. I'm, I'm proud to be Canadian. I've worked all over the world. When I come back, I, I, you know, I come back with a sense of pride. But unless we're careful, unless we do it deliberately, we run the risk of losing this country. And that would be a, a crime against history. Simple numbers. And I think I invite all Canadians to watch these numbers. First of all, a declaration. I'm all for bringing more people to Canada from all over uh, the world because I think that that's what makes Canada special and beautiful. If the government says they want to bring a million immigrants a year, they better only do it if they have a plan for a million houses because that's not part of the plan. And they can't talk about affordable lives for you and for me and for Donald and for everybody else if their plan is to bring a million more people to this country and not have a place for them to live and then say they have an affordability plan. That doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. That's like two plus two equals two plus two equals baseball. It, it right? It doesn't fit. I would add to that. It's not just housing. You bring a million new Canadians. You better think what it means for healthcare services. You better think what it means, you know, for the level uh, of education and training that we need in this country. You better think about all those factors because you could cripple the infrastructure that we have in place now. So that healthcare facilities, healthcare facilities may not be what we expect them to be. So it's not just housing. It has a ripple effect in every sector. Electricity, Donald. We don't have enough electricity sometimes to supply for Canadians. And then the forecast of electric cars is, is that there's still not enough on the grid and the investment is staggering in order to make that happen. So if people like that idea, that's great. It's just going to cost. Uh, but then you can't put a million more users in and say, by the way, we've got enough. Like, I'm all for it. Bring the people. Let's make Canada a better place. But you better do the work, the real work, not the political, you know, welcome to Canada. I'm a champion notion that seems to be out there. Um, I don't know. I, I just find that this, this, this idea that the prime ministers look at everything um, is the only look that's out there. Is it possible, Donald, that this has backfired, that it's backfired, that it's um, to a point where, you know, they, these parties put in a person who um, maybe doesn't represent what people want, but there's no way out of it at this point? It may well be, but there's also another problem. Every file, major, minor ones, the one that hits the media, the one that you may be talking about, 
Everything that's controversial goes to the prime minister. Ministers don't have the power to deal with issues anymore. It goes to the prime minister. Well, there's only 24 hours in a day. The prime minister can only handle so many files and so many issues. He's got to deal with scandals, potential scandals, crisis, a minister resigning. So he, he's, a, he's got a limited number of files. For every one file that he deals with, there's about 200 that's not attended to. So there's a backlog. It creates a crisis in terms of government. And so we, we, we have a serious issue that we need to address. Well, uh, Harjit Sajjan, the former Ministry of Defense, openly said he didn't have time to read all of his emails. Um, that, that's as basic business of an oops as, as any small business goes through. Yeah, if he didn't have time, think about the prime minister's agenda. Yeah, that's why. Yeah, he can deal with 10 major files a day at most, but he should be, because he's centralized, so much of the power centralized there, they ought to be dealing with two or 300 major files a day, but they can't. So a decision that's not, that's not taken is, a, is inherently a bad decision. Well, that takes me back to the decision today or on Tuesday uh, from this independent inquiry, public inquiry about foreign interference. And the information that was stated in there in this review put all of the fault on communication from security to the government. They put all fault on basically on CSIS. They said they, they are not communicating to the government. And if the notion is that the government is overwhelmed because nobody has any power to make decisions anymore, it all starts to kind of make sense now, if that's the case, right? Maybe the problem isn't in the speaking, Donald. Maybe the problem is in the listening. And those two balls bounce back and forth, and they both have to be there in order for this work to work. Yep. Agree. Wow. Agree fully. We could do this for hours. So <laughs> let's save some for our next conversation, Donald. This is fascinating. I really appreciate you being so generous with your time and sharing it with me and all of us here on The Shift. Um, I appreciate you and your insights. And uh, we'll put some uh, links up to get access to you and your books and stuff on shiftheads.ca, which is our website for our community of listeners. Well, thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. And I, I, I like to speak to Western Canada because I think that region has been shortchanged by Ottawa for the past well, 156 years. Yeah. Um, it hasn't found its place under the sun. And for the good of this country, we better find a way for Western Canada to be heard. And I come back to the Energy East. We lost a golden opportunity. Let me tell you how it works now. We ship oil from Alberta by pipeline to Louisiana. Then we put it on boats and we ship it to refineries on the East Coast. Tell me, does that make sense? It does <laughs> not make sense. The ecological risk that. alone. Is, yeah. So if it's, it's for the environment purposes, no, it's worse. That pipeline was a golden opportunity for Atlantic Canada and Western Canada. It got killed for political reasons. That's oh, sad. Well, uh, Donald, thanks so much for being here. Appreciate you. Okay. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed it. This is the Shift Podcast. Are you, are you are you okay 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 are you okay with 877-399-9898 fun stories for you for your good morning uh let's get started ryan o'donnell's in downtown calgary i'm shane hewitt i am in calgary in the north side city of airdries where you can find me are you okay with swimming that is like swimming 
little swim, eh? It's my favorite physical activity. I almost became a lifeguard, actually. I took the first couple of courses, and I love it. Yeah, if I if I had a pool, I would use it, it more than any other piece of gym equipment. I, I really wish it was easier to find a pool in Calgary, but it, nobody has pools here. Hmm. That's, yeah. you know, my uh, boy, a good outdoor pool in the summertime, like a, even a community one. Oh, oh there's good there about was that. one in Woodstock, Ontario that was glorious. Like, I think it was run by lions. There was a giant one in Bronte. I think it's Bronte Park in Burlington, Ontario. It's like this massive bowl. It's huge. That one was amazing, too. Love those. Drum Heller, man. Drum Heller has a fantastic one. It's underneath the big dinosaur. I didn't know that. I've been a drum heller since I was like 10 years old. That's I need to get back on that, man. I got to go swim well, by a dinosaur. Sw- like, that's glorious. Well, under, kind of under. It's not it's like over there. It's not like underneath it. But um, anyway, uh, it's swimming. Fun. Hey, what water. Yeah. We like water. Um, yeah. This Are You Okay story is about swimming with sharks in Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. Now, Florida is the sunshine state. It's got a pretty little orange on the license plate. Gotta love it. They might have to rebrand a little bit, though. I don't think the orange is cutting it. The sunshine name. There was two separate shark attacks in just one weekend in Florida. Tonight, two fishermen are recovering from shark bites they suffered in the Florida Keys. The latest happened Friday night when a 35-year-old man reeled in a shark that chumped him on the foot. On Thursday, 20-year-old Kevin Blanco was bitten twice in the leg while spearfishing. He says the bull shark was about 10 feet long and unlike any other shark he's encountered. That one was not afraid of us. He, he, he wanted me. It was, it was a scary, scary event. chomped on his yeah. foot than any other shark he's encountered. How often does this guy run into sharks? It's it's Florida, man. I mean, I would bet as often as gators and all the other fun animals that you encounter down there in the swamp. I don't know. I don't know. That's, uh, that's tough. Okay, so uh, that was from CBS News, by the way. This should come as no surprise, but more people are attacked by sharks in Florida than anywhere else in the world. You know, it's not a surprise at all. Is that the shark's fault or the people's fault for the way they party and swim down there? That's That's what I want to know. That is possible. It is very possible that uh, that is what's happening. Okay, so there you go. So uh, in Florida, sharks trouble all the things. Now, we said we might set a record here on the shift. If you listen to the shift often, this could make sense to you. If you don't, this will be all new. But... This uh, this this is good. This is interesting, and this is going to be one of those things uh, that you may remember forever as the most iconic moment of your week. Are you okay with ponds? I like a nice pond, like a little koi pond, you know? Yeah, yeah. It'd be nice to live near one, aside from the mosquitoes. But, you know, a, a nice little small body of water really adds a nice, you know, earthy environmental satisfaction to your living area living area i don't know residential i was thinking of my friends who have a pond in their backyard and it's really pretty and you can see the ducks and 
all that just living life and enjoying it it's really the view is amazing not to mention the added property value come on uh one thing that's fun about moving because we live next to water now in the canals the um uh, there's ducks around all the time and yeah. uh, harlow my great dane has no idea what a duck is and when they what fly over the in paris she's it's great it's awesome when dogs find new animals and new creatures it's so good anyway uh if you happen to go down south to the Sunshine State, to the newly rebranded Shark Will Chomp Your Foot State, not only can you get your foot chomped, as per the previous story, by a shark, you also can run into a gator in a pond in Florida. I don't know how things work in Florida, which from your description sounds like a colorful, lawless swamp. <laughs> Okay, a Florida man is recovering. Oh. We love Florida. What would we do without Florida? Man, I, like I can't. This is it, it's a gold mine of good stories. Mm -hmm. A Florida man is recovering in hospital after he was attacked by a gator while trying to take a leak at a local bar. I didn't lose my life, lost an arm. It's not the end of the world. It's that attitude, that outlook on life that stands out about Jordan Rivera. Despite being laid up in a hospital bed with wires all over, he's counting his blessings. His mother is, too. That's the best thing is that I have him. Like, yes, arm gone, very traumatic, but he's here. An alligator attacked Jordan early Sunday morning, biting off his right arm and nearly taking his life. They got my elbow, so I don't have an elbow, but I can still move my arm around and whatnot. Jordan doesn't remember much of what happened. What he does recall is that the bar he was at, Bandito's in Port Charlotte, was busy and the bathroom line was long. So he walked to the pond out back. I just saw a little lake. I was trying to go over there and just, you know, take a little pee or whatnot. Something happened where I either tripped or like something, the ground below me kind of just went down and I ended up in the water. And that's literally the last thing I remember. The next time he opened his eyes, he was here in the hospital. It's then he found out that the gator ate his arm. Fusion, I was like, whoa, like I was just, because I woke up and I was just sitting here and I looked over and then I saw my arm the way it was and I was like, ooh. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot to be had there. That's from NBC too. So, so how did he lose his arm? He lost his elbow, but he can still move his arm around. Um, so he and his yeah, mother. Was, I'm surprised she didn't say. I'm yeah. glad I got my son. He can still go get me some smokes. Yeah, it seems like a really happy family, man. He he has a a longer stump. I would say like the, where the arm was amputated at is mm -hmm. not at his shoulder. Like he still right. has some of his bicep. That's why he says, so he can still move that part of him, uh, around. And, okay. Uh, I have yeah. questions, but let's finish the story. Yeah. Luckily, a good Samaritan mm -hmm. jumped into action, quickly pulling the man from the pond and applying a tourniquet. The gator has since been removed from the pond removed. The gator has yeah, since been good. exited. Yes. Uh, from the pond. Unalive. Okay. So, Let's recap this story a little bit. The lineup at the bar, get it, totally. Outs goes outside. Yeah. Um, and he goes to the pond because there's a pond at the bar. Okay. Um, and I don't know about you, but if I'm doing zoning laws for business, I'm not thinking uh, alcohol service on a gator pond is probably uh, evidence here. Great idea. He uh, went out to go for a pee, he said. Um, and... Uh, it turns out in that pond, it wasn't just a pee. He was trolling and he caught one. So if it bit his, I've asked this question before. When you're brushing your teeth, 
think about it. When you're brushing your teeth, okay. what do you do with your other arm? I nothing probably you actually no holding my phone and watching TikTok. Yeah, but yeah. or doing nothing, and I have no idea. Okay. Do you know, Talia? Do you know what you do when you're brushing your teeth with your other arm? I don't. Yeah. See, nobody knows what they're doing with their other arm. Mm. Okay. The reason why I bring this up. If he goes to the pond and he's taking a pee, why is it that the gator got his arm? So, or he, only his arm? Yes. Yeah, so he fell in, and then on the way out, the gator attacked. And I think the gator grabbed the first thing, which was the arm, which he was trying to push himself up on. Um, apparently there's video of it on TMZ. I didn't even watch it. It's TMZ. I mean, like it's, you know, uh, and also I don't need to see a guy get attacked by a gator. I can watch movies like Anaconda for stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, it seems like the, well, the attack, I, the injury well, happened afterwards. I think Anaconda is kind of what I'm getting at. Um, yeah. so anyway, I, I think that, um, Really, the story could have just been as quick as, hey, I fell into the pond because I was drunk and a gator bit my arm off. Thank God it was my arm. Uh, yeah. Right? Yeah. He had, hey, hey, you could hear it. He was in pretty good spirits for a dude who just lost his right arm in an alligator attack. Mm -hmm. His mother was happy he was sticking around, though. Did oh, you notice that so part? Proud. Holy. Oh, what a proud mother. I can't believe my son. He goes to take a leak in a pond and falls in and gets eaten by a gator. Where are my menthols? <laughs> are you okay with... Oh, there's more. Mm -hmm. Escape plans. Who doesn't love a good escape plan, right? Yeah, I like them in movies a lot. And there's this actually, there's a, uh, my, my brother and I was playing this video game called Escape uh, Escape Artists, I think, where it's like a co-op game where you have to actually take notes and figure out how to escape out of certain situations. It's kind of like a big video game escape room. And man, it was a lot of fun. It's just like an mm. inherent, enjoyable little uh, activity, whether it's in person oh. or video game. Yeah, a little I love it. Shawshank Redemption is awesome. Yeah. Right. So we said we were going to set a record here on the shift today. At least we believe we did. So you already know where we're going for this story. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida. Straight drill. <laughs> Man. Okay. Yes. The Great Escape, Florida edition. I love Florida. Authority. They say they foiled an elderly businessman's plan to escape Florida jail and return to his castle in France. Deputies say 78-year-old John Manchek enlisted the group to break him out of the Indian River County Jail near Vero Beach. Manchek was arrested in 2014, but after bonding out, he took off to France. That's where he is a dual citizen. France refused to extradite him. But he was once again arrested in 2020 during a visit to the Dominican Republic. Well, the plot to free him included a plan to take out guards during a fake doctor's visit and then hopping on his plane in Fort Lauderdale and then head to France. Our detectives and our team were able to intercept this and they did a fantastic job. And because of it, they're all facing additional charges. 
An investigation is ongoing, but officials are working to seize Manchek's assets, including a yacht, a plane, and his castle. Oh, rule. CBS oh, Miami right there. Uh, okay, so he's got a yacht, he's got a plane, he's got a castle, he's in jail in Florida. Um, an examination of the man's jail phone records discovered he used the code words paint job while talking with his employees about the plot. The co-conspirators were prepare, uh, were to prepare his plane, his 140-foot yacht, a black utility van, and other vehicles purchased just for this escape attempt. Everybody knows you steal those cars, by the way. You don't actually buy them. That's where rich guys get it wrong, right? Come on. The man even paid bail for a cellmate and then allowed them to live in his home. That person helped prepare for the escape, right down to packing a suitcase. Not to be forgotten, his favorite liquor. I'm all for planning being organized, but this is too much. Yeah, but I feel he was so confident in this plan working that he was like, let's just go all in every dime. This is my one shot. No, I don't think that was every dime. I think that it was just, um, I think that he's so used to being in control that he couldn't be out of control. That's weird. Okay, well, there we go. Um, Hey, I would love to, wouldn't that be great to have a yacht, castle, Castle. your own plane? Of of the... But of those three things, which one would you rather have? I'd rather have the castle. Oh, I'd take the castle. I'd have to see the castle, right? right? True, true. I think I would ask for a little walkthrough first. I mean, mean, taking the black utility van is tempting, though. Useful. Great use of space. Yeah. If you ever have too many puppies, you can, you know, give them away, sell candy, all that kind of stuff. That'd be great. Mm. Great way to go. Yeah. No. Oh, black utility van. No, that's not good. Don't do that. Yeah, one hundred forty no. foot yacht. Um, yeah, that'd be nice. About they're expensive though. I feel like the best. A plane yeah. would be fun. You know. All right. What should we do? Right. Set a record. Are you okay with lizards? Lizards. Yeah, you know they don't bug me. No, I think they're kind of cool. Uh, geckos and. Uh, chameleons like they're very interesting animals uh, you know I, I don't have any desire to to own one as a pet or or anything mm. like that but i think objectively they're probably some of the coolest animals on the planet well we are lizards right really oh yeah right according to the some of the guys that email me and claim i'm working for the lizard people yeah. oh yeah there's that no no but there's the reptilian part of your brain there's i mean there's all kinds of stuff there i mean we can't dismiss all of it uh a man from hollywood found a very large and angry iguana in the place you don't want to see one in the toilet i thought um i was in jurassic park or something for 58 year old john riddle this particular trip to his restroom left him freaked out he was uh, splashing and hissing at me and frightened I was scared. I'm not a reptile fan. The iguana was right here. It happened Friday at his Hollywood home off North Hills Drive when he noticed the bathroom door off his pool deck was still open. So when he went to close it, he saw this sitting in his toilet. That's when it turned around and opened its mouth. 
and that's all I needed to see to like back off for a minute and figure out what was going on. He says the iguana then went deeper into the toilet. And while trying his best to stay calm and figure out what to do next, he grabbed a nearby baby gate to keep it from sneaking out and running into his bedroom. I came back probably a little bit less than an hour later, and there he was again, splashing around. All right, this is my chance. And um, I, gave him, I was trying to work up the nerve to grab him and throw him out. But before I did that, he crawled out and crawled like behind the toilet. <laughs> and that's when I grabbed the strainer and shoot him out. It then dove into his pool and eventually ran into the backyard. <laughs> that is a wild story. If you take that completely out of context, <laughs> like he found it in his toilet and then it turned around and opened up its mouth like that is Man, that's crazy. Okay, um, so we said we would set a record here on the shift, and this yeah. is the first time this has ever happened. That was from WSVN Seven, by the way. Uh, did we mention that? Um, where did we say that? That was in Hollywood. It was in Hollywood. Yeah, it was in Hollywood. So, yeah. How could that be a record? Oh, right, it was in Hollywood, Florida. What does it mean to be from Florida? Florida, straight drip. Wow. Four yep. in one. Are you okay? That's incredible. Um, that's a real place. Hollywood, Florida, by the way, if you didn't know. The man said the iguana dove into his pool and eventually ran into the backyard. He believes the reptile got in when he left the door open while walking his doggos. I, I don't know. That's, I don't know. Snake in the toilet. Scary, right? Yeah. At least it didn't crawl up from the from the drain right that's the true yeah. fear right it just yeah. it dove in which of all the places it's like that's where i want to go <laughs> that's well, if you my were the porcelain throne <laughs> that's my castle in, in france friends in france yeah um okay so now out of respect for the fact that this has been the first time that an entire are you okay segment is 100 percent not only brought to you by but might as well be sponsored by the state of florida Here's a tribute Ryan has put together to Florida with some new and old favorites all in one to flash us back to some of the best stories ever. What does it mean to be from Florida? Police officers say this man sold crack to an undercover police officer all while wearing a shirt that said Coke on it. I woke up and I was just sitting here and I looked over and then I saw my arm the way it was and I was like, ooh. And this 10-foot gator was having a marvelous time sitting right in my kitchen tonight two fishermen are recovering from shark bites they suffered in the florida keys oh, florida straight drill <laughs> there you go all things florida we love it please be careful if you're going to the swamp to take a leak that's really your takeaway Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.